We are in the Sermon on the Mount. We've already covered the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to do the entire remainder of Matthew chapter 5 today from verse 17 all the way down to verse 48. So if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, then when I read it, you can check and make sure I'm not lying to you, uh, that I'm saying what it says. Now, uh, the title this morning, and you can follow along in the notes if you want to, is the five internal enemies of the eight values. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. This is going to hurt. Amen. This is, and it's not my fault. It's Jesus' fault uh, and the way we're wired. But this is, uh, so just, you know, buckle up, be ready. As we get towards the end here, it gets interesting. Okay, so uh, we've covered the eight values. I want to remind you of those because Jesus starts with those in the Sermon on the Mount because he's continually thinking of those or referring back to those as he goes on and talks about all these other things because these are foundational. These eight values that we need to be building in ourselves because remember we said the whole Sermon on the Mount is about shifting them from a, a law outward performance mentality to an inward heart confirmation to God mentality. And so all of these are heart conditions, uh, not just outward obedience things. And so the eight values, if you recall, that we're all, I, I, you guys all worked on these over the holidays, right? Sometimes your family helps. Either way. Uh, so, uh, one, humility. Two, uh, mourning over sin, and again, we said not just our own sin, but others, that we don't judge when others sin, we mourn, we, we, we pray, we want them to be better. Uh, gentleness, uh, righteousness, and we said not righteousness just as an obligation, but actual cultivation of a hungering and thirsting for righteousness as a desire, as an inner value, actually seeing the benefit of righteousness, not just begrudgingly doing it because we're afraid to burn in hell. Uh, mercy, heart purity, not just outward obedience, but purity of our hearts. Peacemaking, pursuing peace. And finally, the fear of God. And this was in the context of persecution, that, uh, that we would be willing even to suffer persecution, ridicule, because the fear of God in us was greater than the fear of man. And we weren't going to roll over just to be spoken well of. So you guys remember us talking about all these, right? Okay, good. You've been working on them. You're awesome at them. That's great because uh, uh, we're going to build on these now. I want the entire time we're doing the Sermon on the Mount, I want these eight values in the back of our minds. And then I finished up last time with this statement that the eight values don't replace the law but fully satisfy its intent. Again, the law kind of outlines the outward things, but... Uh, these eight values go more to the heart intent of those outward things. And we see this in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. So let me read that real quickly, and then we'll talk about it. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So in other words, I'm not doing something new. We're not doing away with the law. We're actually going deeper. We're going to fulfill the intent of the law. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And then he says, 
Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men, we don't really think about that. It's easy to blow past that, especially if uh, you're up here in the pulpit teaching this stuff, knowing that God's going to pull up all your videos if he needs to, right? Uh, it may go the same if your pulpit's out there on the Internet. doesn't matter. Uh, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so. That should scare us a little, right? One of the least of these commandments. Uh, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Probably not going to cost you your salvation. Uh, but I don't want to be least in the kingdom of heaven. I'd like to at least, you know, be somewhere in the, you know, 50th percentile. Right? At least be average in the kingdom of heaven. I'm not shooting for least. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Maybe he only has two categories. I don't know. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first one, least greatest, that doesn't sound like a salvation issue. This one does. This says you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the standard of righteousness in that day because they did everything the law said, every jot, every tittle. They, they taught, if they, you gave them, you know, some herbs from your garden. They'd divide out a little tenth of those herbs and make sure they tied those. They were very meticulous about that. But where were their hearts? They couldn't even recognize the Messiah when he showed up on the earth. And so he's clearly talking here about <clears throat> a righteousness that goes past the outward obedience to the heart. Amen? And so he's saying if, if all you're doing is just being righteous like the Pharisees, just checking the boxes, praying the prayer, hope you make it, uh, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because if we're going way past just make sure you offer the right animal at the right time for the right sacrifice. We're going for hearts here. And so uh, that's what's going on. There we go. So uh, we're going to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Catch this. This is obvious if you've been a Christian for a while, but very important, uh, we're going to easily exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees simply by having imputed to us the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, and we can get that by faith, doing nothing but believing in Jesus. Amen? Amen? Okay, so here's what I want you to get out of that. Let's First, let's talk about this how we're going farther, how we're satisfying the intent of the law. And I want you to see something. What is the standard? What is the standard? Because we all hold ourselves as Christians to a standard. And so I'm going to skip down to the end of the chapter uh, just for fun. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What's the standard? Perfection. Now, if you guys... Get that, we can stop right here and be done. Just be perfect for the rest of your lives. Right? That's a little intimidating, isn't it? And so what we do, our human nature wants to lower the bar. He doesn't really mean perfect, perfect. He means he's perfect 
and we should be perfect-ish, which means is, you know, <laughs> human perfect, which is not very perfect at all, which, which barely resembles him sometimes, but it's the best we can do. And we lower the bar. So what I want to establish clearly in Scripture the standard is perfection. We must be perfect to go to a perfect heaven and live with a perfect God. Thank God Jesus, the perfect one, imputed to us his perfection so that we can go. But the standard on earth now is still perfection, striving for that. Now, <clears throat> how many of you are concerned that you may not be perfect even for the rest of the day? Yeah. So here's the thing. You can fail today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day. And each time you can go to Jesus and he will forgive you and he will restore your perfection because his blood on the cross paid for that, right? And that's awesome. But there's a fine line there. That does not mean we have license to fail as often as we want because he will forgive us, right? And so what I want us to see is even though we don't reasonably expect to live a perfect life every day, we never lower the bar. You understand what I'm saying? That is always the bar. That is always the standard. That is always our goal. We just probably do a lot of, please forgive me, because we don't always hit the bar. You understand what I'm saying? It's really important that we get this because, because it's so difficult to be perfect like our Father in Heaven is perfect, our human nature is to lower the bar, and we can't do that. That's when you end up with compromise and doctrinal compromise and saying this sin is okay and that sin is okay, and that attitude is okay and this attitude is okay, and well, everybody does that, right? He said, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, even the ones that everybody breaks, right? Told you this was going to be painful. All right. So we have to understand that the purpose of the law was not to perfect us. The purpose of the law was awareness. We see this in Romans. We see this in Galatians 3, that the law cannot make us perfect. The law came after to make us aware of sin. Uh, Galatians 3 says it's literally our schoolmaster, one who takes by the hand to lead us to faith, to show us the need for salvation through faith in Christ. That's the entire purpose of the law. The only reason we have the law is to show us how much we need Jesus, the perfect one. Amen? And we see that in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> For what the law could not do, there are things the law couldn't do, namely make you perfect. Uh, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. Did what? Made us perfect by sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh, that's speaking of him dying on the cross in our place, on account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law, perfection, might be fulfilled in us. Wow. Oh, wait, there's a caveat here. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So apparently, uh, we have to walk according to the Spirit for this to happen. You guys following me? So the righteous requirements of the law can be fulfilled in us 
as we choose to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And that's the hard part. 2 Corinthians 5.21 lays this out. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We've got to grasp that. We are the righteousness of Christ, but only in him, not turned loose. Better stay in him. That's why he says, abide in me. Amen? Because our righteousness is in him. And so by him, in him, by his spirit, we can live out these eight values that fulfill the law that seem so difficult. Now, if they haven't seemed difficult to you yet, they're going to seem difficult to you in the next 20 minutes. Uh, because I'm going to begin to talk about the five internal enemies that uh, are enemies of the eight values that literally wage war against these values. You want to cultivate these eight values in your spirit. There's stuff already in there that's going to war against these, and you need to be aware of it because you want to win the war. And again, what you're going to see as we look at these passages, the remainder of Matthew chapter 5, you're going to see Jesus starting with outward behavior. You've heard it written in the law. And finishing with uh, heart intentions. But I say to you, and he deals with a heart issue. He's going to do it again and again and again. Okay? So it's very clear it's what he's doing. So we're going to look at these five. And uh, the last two wrecked me, so just, you know, be prepared. All right? Here we go. The first one is an internal enemy that will fight against or, uh, you know, war against the cultivation of these eight values in your life. And the first one is anger. And it should be intuitively obvious that you can't cultivate anger and humility or anger and gentleness or anger and mercy or anger and peacemaking uh, both at the same time, right? Because they're, they're incompatible. So let's look at this. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said of old, law, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And we're pretty good with that. Most of you, who, has anybody murdered anyone ever? This is awesome. Yeah. Okay. So we've done pretty well so far on the Old Testament no murder thing. Uh, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, uh, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Holy cow. It's kind of heavy. I've, I think I've used that fool word. Right? And again, he's talking about intentions of the heart. Let's not get, I'm going to generalize here a little bit. Let's not get too hung up on the literal implication of just that word. Let's generalize it to anger. Um, so he's saying, that just being angry is comparative to murder, right? So that's kind of heavy. And now, uh, if I say, how many of you have been angry? I'm going to see every hand, right? So that's different. We didn't murder anyone, but, you know, we were angry. And so we qualify. Now, he goes on and he says, uh, therefore, because of this anger issue in our hearts, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. 
first be reconciled to your brother and then come off of your gift. So we'll talk about that. Second thing he says is, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you'd be thrown into prison. I surely, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid every penny. So let's develop this a little bit. First, he says that we're to prioritize reconciliation even over worship. He's saying if you're on your way to church and you realize that you, you, your brother has issue against you, you're not in fellowship with your brother. He goes, you know what? I would prefer you go fix that first than come worship. Now, that's not a reason to just save that till Sunday morning and skip church. Do it on Saturday. But uh, you get the point. He's saying this is so important, it'll affect your ability to worship. I'd rather you go get this reconciled and then come into worship. So this anger thing, he says, guys, you, you got to deal with this. We can't, uh, you can't be coming into worship and be angry with your brothers and sisters because uh, I love you and I love them, and I don't like when you guys are angry with each other. So just fix that, then come worship, right? He's very serious about the anger thing. Here's how serious. And this is the part I want you to get. He says, agree with your adversary quickly, which means sit down, work it out, be reconciled, come to some agreements. Otherwise, you guys go at it, you're angry, he's angry, you're going to end up in court, and every, only people who make money then are lawyers. Uh, everybody's going to pay. You will pay every penny. Again, look at the general principle here, not just the specific you're probably not going to end up in court for being angry at your brother. But you will pay. There will be a cost. What I want you to see is that anger always exacts a price. Always. There is always a cost to holding on to our anger. Always. You see this in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. I want to read these. It says, for all the law, all of it, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love takes care of the law, right? Then he says, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. A little bit of anger, a little bite, a little bite, a little bite, a little bite. Inevitably, it will cost you some flesh. I'm telling you guys, how many of you have experienced that? And again, don't raise your hands. How many of you have experienced this? You were, you were in a battle. You were in anger. You were in all this stuff, and you realize this is costing me. Uh, I'm getting devoured by this. They're getting devoured by this. We're seeing this play out again and again and again in our culture right now. People are being devoured by anger, and we don't have to live that way. We can be free of anger. It's an internal enemy that will fight against you developing these eight values in your heart. Get it? Okay, that was, believe it or not, probably the easy one. Sorry. Number two. Again, uh, it's specific, talking about adultery and divorcing your wife. And I'm going to kind of skip the divorcing your wife part because that's like an entire another teaching. I don't have time for that rabbit trail. So maybe another time. 
uh, I want to deal with generally just the concept of lusts. We have uh, internal enemies that are in anger. We have our own lusts that are in anger. And we all got them because anyone who doesn't have lusts, you don't have flesh. All right? I'm not just talking about sexual immorality. There's a lot of lusts. I got some licorice at home, you know, sitting on my counter just waiting for me to walk by. All right. Matthew 5, 27 through 32. I'll, I'll just read through 30 probably. Uh, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, and again, going from the outward, you can, in the Old Testament, you could stare at your neighbor's wife all day and fantasize and not break the law. Now you can't because he's going to heart issues. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart, which Jesus is now making an issue. And then he says just radical stuff. I'm going to tell you right now, I think he's using hyperbole here to make an example. Uh, I don't think he is, and we, by the way, just if you're listening online or something, you want to catch me in this, we're not advocating self-mutilation right now. Uh, so keep your eyes and your hands. But... Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is more profitable that for, for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And that's absolutely true. I'd rather lose both my eyes and both my hands than burn forever in hell, right? Uh, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And again... I think this is hyperbole. I think he's saying radically cut off the roots of sin in your life. I think he's saying don't entertain them. Don't just keep it because it's familiar like your hand. He's not saying cut off your hand and pluck out your eyes. He's saying cut off the stuff that's causing you to sin, that's competing with you developing these eight values in your life. Uh, where we see this is in uh, Romans thirteen fourteen. Where Jesus says, or I'm sorry, where Paul says, uh, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know we're to do that, right? And he says a second thing. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, but make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now, right now, uh, I need to lose a few pounds, holidays. I could throw away that licorice, but uh, <laughs> sitting on my counter. It is absolutely a provision for my flesh. It will provide exactly what my flesh desires. Now, that's pretty innocuous, right, licorice? It'll be gone eventually, and if I don't buy more, I'll be okay. But they're, you know, talking about what he's specifically talking about here. There are things uh, that we might need to radically cut off. Uh, the, the lust issue. Uh, you know, if you're a teenage boy, there's no reason to have a TV with all the movie channels in your room, period. Or a teenage girl, for that matter. Or a grown adult, you know. Uh, just, that's a provision for the flesh. It's not going to end well. You know it's not going to end well. And so what he's saying is cut out of our lives things that feed the lusts that we know we have. Cut them out. Be radical with them, like cutting off a hand, like cutting out a finger. And, and it, might, uh, it might be things, again, like you need, you know, uh, lots of us have internet filters or uh, accountability partners or stuff like that. It might be, you know, uh, activities. I, I, you know, I 
I used to love to go bowling, but I can't go bowling now because every time I go there, I drink too much and I get drunk and I get in an accident on the way home. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's your deal. You figure it out. Probably not bowling. But my point is there are activities that you get involved in and you start noticing, hey, this doesn't lead me to a good place. He's just saying cut it out. Cut that off. Like you'd pluck out an eye or cut off a hand. Cut off that activity. There are people. There are people that you got to love them, but you can't be around them. Because every time, and I'm not just talking about, oh, every time I hang out with this guy, I end up, you know, doing drugs. I'm talking about every time I end up with this person, talking to him, I end up negative. I end up being mad at my husband or my wife. I end up, and I just can't hang around with that person because it's a provision for my flesh. And so what he's saying is, that we have to recognize that we have lusts in our flesh and we all have different ones and we need to not make a provision for them. We need to radically cut off the roots of those things that lead us down those paths because we cannot pursue those and pursue the eight values. Let me show you that. Our lusts will actually choke out the eight values and we won't see it happening because it happens slowly, all right? For example, I, I know a buddy. I have like one video game on my iPad. I can't have more than one because uh, that's too much. I can have one. I know I have a friend. He goes, I can't have any. He goes, I'm so competitive, it will consume my life. He knows himself, right? You just, uh, for some of you, uh, you know, you're, some of you young guys are probably sitting around thinking, I want a wife someday, but you spend, you know, 12 hours a day playing video games. It's probably not going to happen. Yeah? Make some choices. All right. Anyway, our lusts will choke out the eight values. In Jesus, when he's talking about the parable of the sower and the seed thrown on the four types of ground, one of the types of ground is ground with, with thorns and vines. And here's what he says about it. He says, now the one that fell among the thorns are those who, when they heard the word, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and the pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. If we don't deal with the cares, riches, pleasures of life, the lusts that consume us, and sometimes they're good things, or not necessarily, you know, just not bad things, but they're too consuming. And they keep us, they choke out, our pursuit of the eight values and our ability to bear fruit to maturity, right? So, you know, we just deal with that. Where do I need to adjust my life to do these kind of things? Amen? All right. Are you having fun yet? It's is good. It hurts so good, right? Okay. <laughs> Number three. I'm going to put this under the general category, even though he's talking about something specific here, of religious performance. We're going to look at verses 33 through 37. You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Swear an oath, and I'm going to do it. And, you know, uh, it's pretty impressive when you stand up in front of the congregation and swear an oath to the Lord and all that stuff. Everybody's, everybody's looking at you going, that dude's serious. He's swearing an oath, right? But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by earth, for it's his footstool, 
nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. None of those things, by the way, are yours. They're all God's. Uh, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. So what he's saying is, I'm not impressed that you swear by your head, because you can't even, what can you do? You can't even change your hair color. I ain't impressed. You can't make it happen, so you swore. That doesn't tell me you're going to actually do it, right? But let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. He's saying, just be a person of your word. Just do what you say. And if you've got to say more, that's coming from the evil one. Now, what's that about? Well, I think that's when we begin to get into religious performance because we're putting our effort over his grace. We're putting our effort over his grace. And we're beginning to nudge towards the outward activities instead of the heart issues, you know? And so, uh, are you going to do this thing? Yes, I'm going to do this thing. Are you going to do this? No, 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 I swear. I swear on Church on the Rock, on the roof, and two of the doors that I'm going to do this thing. I'm really serious, and I've indicated my seriousness by what I swore on, and so you know that uh, I'm going to put maximum effort into it, right? And so I'm now edging into the performance thing where it's, uh, I'm, I'm performing for you to convince you that I really am serious instead of just doing it. And so it begins to edge into that outward thing. Remember uh, John 15, 5, Jesus tells us to abide in him because without him we can do nothing. So I swear to you, I'm going to do this thing. But without Jesus, I can't do it. So what's the point? That's what he's saying. Don't, don't swear. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because you need my help anyway. You can't even change the color of your hair. Right? You can't do anything about it anyway. All you can do is lean on me. And so what I want us to get here is, again, I think the part where the thing that is from the evil one is it's, it's us trying to convince ourselves and others that, we're spiritual. Uh, and, and we can do this. Uh, this performance thing, it's very easy to get into the religious performance, to go back to the outward stuff. Uh, we want to put a great band up here. and We want them to actually play, you know, all in the same key and uh, be excellent and sing on tune and stuff like that. That's good. Uh, now, you can go too far with that, right? We can get to where we've got everything figured out and the times and then and we're going to swell right here. And at this point, uh, that's really going to manipulate the emotions of the people. And they're going to be ready. And the pastor's going to jump up. And he's going to say this thing. And he's going to add a couple syllables to a couple words. And it's going to sound really spiritual. And people are going to come to the altar and probably get saved before they even know what happened. Right? We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do performance. Right? But there's a fine line where we begin to edge back into that thing where we are no longer leaning on God's grace. We're leaning on our effort. I'm not saying don't put effort in. Musicians practice. Pastors should, you know, try and be interesting a little bit. But, you know, and if you talk loud, talk loud. You don't, don't. I don't care. But don't talk loud because you think it's going to make something happen that wouldn't happen if you didn't. You know what I'm saying? 
we get people up and we pray for them. We want stuff to happen. We want people to get healed. We want the power of God to encounter them. It's really tempting to try and help the Holy Spirit a little bit. Right? Let's just help the Holy Spirit. Maybe if we just prime the pump a little bit, something will happen. Maybe something will get started. Maybe if I pray this way, I pray that way, I do this thing, I do that thing. Because we just want something. It's not bad you want something to happen. But that's a line where you're no longer leaving it to God. You're beginning to perform. I wonder if I do it this way, if I can get this result. Right? You understand what I'm saying? Uh, there are all kinds of specifics. And so that's why our, our motto here is go for it hard, but please don't be any weirder than you have to be. Uh, God makes you weird. We can deal with that. But don't be weird just because you're trying to help the Holy Spirit. Amen? The Holy Spirit, one of his names is the helper. He helps us. This is going to blow your minds. He does not need our help. I am not the Holy Spirit's little helper. <laughs> he just shakes his head when I try that. I think he just sits down and goes, well, I'll get back up when you're done. Right? You get what I'm saying? So I think here what Jesus is saying is we've got to watch the part of our heart that wants to move towards religious performance and stay in the place of grace and leaning on Jesus to work out these eight values in our life. Amen? All right, you ready for the two tough ones that wrecked me? Okay, here we go. Number four, the demand for justice. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Justice. Right? Amen. Hang on there. Okay. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, it's, talk, it's not talking about just letting somebody beat you up. Uh, that specifically is an insult. That was, you know, that's how you'd insult someone back then. You'd slap them on the cheek. And, and so you're basically going, go ahead, insult me again. I don't care. Um, if everyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So that tracks with today. Someone sues you and says, I want this. Say, sure, take it. And here, you can have this also. Right? Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with them too. He's talking about Back in that day, the Roman soldiers could compel anyone, any citizen or peasant or whatever, to carry their, their rucksack, their gear for him for a mile. They could just make him do it. It was the law. And he's going, well, want to make you carry it a mile? Go two miles. Freak him out. So I'll, I'll do another mile for you. Just serve him. And then he says, finally, give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So just, and now he starts out. Uh, talking about enemies. Is he talking about actually loaning stuff to my enemies? Hmm, he might be. So here's the thing. We have to, I think, give up our demand for our right for justice. He's basically saying here that when you have an enemy, when there is injustice, you are to endure insult endure loss, serve them, and give to them. And it was at this point that I began to be discouraged. 
in the preparation windows, and I'm sitting there going, God, how can we do this? How can we do this? Uh, it's just hard. Think about that. I mean, really think about that. An enemy, and God says, just, you know, just overlook. Just endure the insult. Even endure the loss. Serve him. Be generous to him. Isn't that wild? God loves that way. But he seems to be uh, expecting that from us. So in the midst of a generation that is screaming about justice, literally social justice is probably a, a major in college now, what if God is telling the church to give up their right to have justice? Give up your right to have justice. That's heavy. Now, perhaps you're thinking, Pastor, didn't you just tell us a few weeks ago that prayer is, I remember you read uh, the, the parable of the persistent widow and how she called out for justice. You told us that prayer was us partnering with God to bring justice in the earth. I did, you're right. Thanks for remembering. But we are praying for him to execute justice. We do not, here's the fine line, we do not get to execute the justice ourselves. We do not get to determine the timing. If he wants to wait till he comes again to do it, he gets to wait till he comes again to do it. And we do not get to determine the way that justice is executed. It might be that the person that you want justice for against is going to get saved in five years and the way he will execute that justice is the same way he did for you by Jesus' death on the cross. Right? So, yes, we pray for justice in the earth. We pray for justice in our lives. But we give up the right to have personal justice now. Knowing that Ultimately, everyone will have justice. Jesus will judge the earth in righteousness. But we give up the right to execute it, to determine the timing, determine the way. We give up the right to demand justice. That's heavy. This is where I started. I, I you know, I forget sometimes how heavy uh, the Sermon on the Mount is. And I just go, man, this is hard. Giving up my right to demand justice, just suffering injustice and just taking it. And being more concerned about developing these eight values than about getting my justice. Uh, is this helping anybody? Okay, the last one's the worst one. <laughs> this is the one that really wrecked me. All right. Finishing up. He says, uh, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that sounds pretty good to me. I like, I'm ready to stop there right? But I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, we got to stop and think about this because to be honest with you, I think we, these are so hard that we've, without even realizing it, lowered the bar. And he doesn't really mean our enemies. He means, you know, that guy that's mildly annoying, but not, not that guy. Right? Listen to the words. But I say to you, love your enemies. 
bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Wow. How many of you have done that this week? I know. Me neither. Yeah. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So he's saying, do this so that you'll be like Dad, because he does this all the time. He's just totally blessing people that hate him and persecute him and revile him. And he just keeps blessing. Isn't that amazing? For if you love those who love you, uh, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? In other words, that first line that I liked, uh, love your enemies, hate your neighbors, he's you know, that, who's impressed by that? You don't need Jesus to do that. Sinners do that, right? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do so. And then here it comes. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Wow. Perfect in love. God is awesome in love. Here's what hit me. Here's what broke me up. Uh, to be honest with you, I finished typing the last couple of things, these notes, and I just sat there trying not to cry, staring at my notes, going, I don't think I can do this. How do I do this? And the last question is how God responded. So here's what I think. I think all this time I've been thinking, yeah, I got to love people. Yeah, I got to love people. Yeah, some people are harder than others. I got to love people. But uh, that guy over there, thank God he's over there. I don't have to worry about him. I have to love him because he's annoying. That guy's a jerk. I don't really, I don't, you know, I don't have to, I can't hate him. But I don't have to be around him. I can just ignore him, stay away from him, and, and I don't have to, not, I don't have to love him really. I just have to not hate him, right? Is anybody with me? So here's what I thought. Here's what God showed me. I don't think I have the right to withhold love from anyone. And that blew my mind. I'm like, the most wicked, evil person in the world? Jesus won't withhold love from them. I don't think I have the I don't think it's a right. I think up until now I've been kind of believing I had the right to pick and choose who I love. And I'm not, I know I'm not going to hate them, but I can withhold my love from them. I don't have to hang out with them. And, you know, right? But if God says, go love them, i got to go love them. And I realize, wow, I have to give up my right to withhold love from anyone. And that is hard. That is challenging. I mean, that's really challenging, right? Because well, you know them. You know some people, right? And so... I read Romans 13, 8. I'm going to read it to you. I love this passage. It says, Owe no one anything. He's encouraging us not to be in debt to one another. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. I, uh, I think uh, some, some of your translations will even say, Owe no one anything except the debt of love. Either way, Paul is talking about love like it's a debt we owe people. 
And where did we incur that debt? The cross. So apparently, I only have to love people uh, in commensurate with the love that Jesus has shown for me. That's all I got to do. That's the debt I owe. I owe Jesus this much love. And he says, pay it forward. I owe you this much love. So here's what's wild. Guys, think about this. I'm starting to ponder this, sitting at my desk going, man, this is hard. I actually, not only can, do I not have the right to withhold love, I actually owe people love. I owe that jerk love. Think about this. I owe it to him? It's a debt I have to pay? And I'm thinking, Jesus, you were awesome in love and mercy. But we just can't do that. And I picture myself, uh, Jesus, you know, doing the Sermon on the Mount. And he gets done, he walks over to me, and he says, what you think? And I know that's a really good sermon, but you got to know there's no way we can do that. And he looks at me, and he says, no, the Father and I, we're going to give you the Holy Spirit. We think you can do it. We think you can do it. We actually think you can do it. So I wrote down this last question you have in your notes. What if God really thinks we can be as awesome in love and mercy as he is. And then I sat and, yeah. And then I just sat there and stared at it and tried not to cry. Man, what if he thinks that about that? So what if he's looking at me thinking, I think you can be as awesome in love and mercy as I am. I'm going, I don't know, God. I don't know if I can do that. And it's okay. My Holy Spirit can do it. If you'll pursue these eight values begin to work that in your life. Isn't that wild? Really wrecked me uh, to think not only God loves that way, and we, we get that, but I thought, man, we've lowered the bar so far that we don't even have, we don't really even have a realistic expectation that we're going to love people like Jesus loved. Once we really start thinking about how Jesus loves, blessing your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, doing good to those who hate you. I just go, wow, I just don't see a lot of that in the earth. Even in the church, uh, I see some. And you've seen some. You've done it some. We've all done it some. But Jesus is awesome in love and mercy. Now, I'm not that awesome at it yet. But I'm, I'm starting to go, maybe he's right. Maybe we can be awesome at this. What do you think? But I tell you what. It's going to require us giving up our right to justice and our right to withhold love. So I'm going to ask the band to come up. And uh, here's what I want to do. I felt when we were praying this morning, I felt like God was focusing in on those two things, our right to have justice and our right to withhold love. And uh, I wasn't sure, I mean, I, I understand those things, but I wasn't sure before this morning that I had really given those to him. So I am sure now, <laughs> after yesterday. And so I think I want to give you that same opportunity. So we're going we're gonna to go back into worship.
you don't have to come up front if you don't want to, but I, I felt like God specifically wanted me to invite whoever wants you to come up front. Uh, and there's just something in that sometimes. Uh, if you want to come up and lay that on the altar, so to speak, God, I give you my right to have justice. I give you my right to withhold love. Uh, I'm all in. Amen? So let's stand. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. At any point, the altar's open. Come up and do business with God. Jesus, I just want to say that you are awesome in love and mercy. And I say that knowing that I don't even get it yet. I don't even really understand how awesome you are in love and mercy. But I want to. Lord, we want what Paul prayed for, a revelation of the width and length and depth and height of your love. Yes. It passes knowledge so that we can be filled with your fullness, so that you can trust us with your heart. Lord, I want to value these eight things that you value. And uh, Lord, I want wisdom to root out of my life uh, these enemies of those values. And Lord, we just want to give you our right to justice. You didn't get justice, Lord. We want to give you our right to withhold love because you love everyone. But I know you'll give us wisdom and how to walk that out. It doesn't mean we have to spend time with everyone. It just means we have to love where you tell us. We have to have your heart. Lord, I want to see a church that begins to get this on this level. What would your church look like? Awesome in love and mercy like you. What would that look like in the earth? Oh, dear Jesus.